Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I'm here with my colleague Mark Pringle. Hello, Barney. We are here with our very special guest today, Aww. the great Jennifer Otter Bickerdyke. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, just hear you say my name. I'm like, Barney knows who I am. Yeah. Very yeah. excited. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be worrying if I didn't know. I'd be thinking, who is this woman? She just came in. in. Yeah. Off the street. Just in. Yeah. Um, I do know who you are. I love who you are. Aww. We're really honored to have you here. We're really Absolutely. delighted. We adore you. And we're going to have some fun talking about you. We're also going to be talking about the great and endlessly enigmatic Alex Chilton of Big Star fame. We have an audio interview with him from 1986. We're going to be talking a little bit about Prefab Sprout, who are the subject of this week's Free on RBP feature. A very little bit about Prefab Sprout. <laughs> if, Mark, <laughs> if Mark has his way, his curmudgeonly way. But lots to talk about. Everything essentially that's new on Rock's Back Pages this coming week. But we're going to start with you, my darling. Well, can I just give a quick plug for Rock's Back Pages? Are you going to plug Rock's Back well, Pages on the, on the, podcast. the Rock's Back Pages I know, but podcast. I just have to say, so I'm researching a new book, which we'll talk about later on. And I have spent, I clocked it in, I think I've spent about what would be a week straight of hours at the British Library. And Rock's Back Pages pisses all over the British Library. That's and, a quote, isn't yeah. it? Can we put that? Yeah, on yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, like there was, there was, there was only, and I went through three thousand five hundred and sixty-two individual articles about the subject that I'm doing my book on, and there was only, I think, four things in all of that that was not on Rock's back pages. If we're talking about rock journalism, well, that is amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. I know what the subject of your next. I know. We'll talk. We'll, we'll I'm talk, really looking okay, we'll talk about. about we'll that. talk about it. We'll, we'll leave our listeners yes, in suspense. Yeah, but yeah. Jennifer, just um, tell me, tell us a little bit about yourself. Besides being a huge Barney fan. Which well, we know, yeah, we yeah. Know that. I mean, there's, okay. room, there are, there's room for other, <laughs> other things. Okay. So I, my current job right now, I love my job. I am the global music ambassador for BIM, and we are a Which music... is the British Institute of Modern Music. Yeah, that's for right. For those who don't know. That's very, very good. I thought I'd better just In say. one. Yeah, In cause... one, you got it. We have eight university sites across the UK and in Germany. And my job is to bring in basically exciting and creative innovative artists, mentors like yourself, and bring them into the universities to work with the students. Well, we did a session, didn't we? We you did. Were very, very, you, and I got paid. And yes. This was yes. amazing. We, this was a couple this, of years yeah. ago. It was slightly shocking. It was shocking. We, yeah, we, we believe. Paid handsomely, yeah. really. You know, and I think I was about your Kit Kat bar. I think I got your Kit Kat as well. You Maybe got me not. a kick, oh. Oh, No, no, it's much more healthy. I'm not healthy. sure I declared much, the kick much, much as, tax which, <laughs> I think it was a healthier choice, like a naked nut bar or something like that. I'm but sure you no were idea. very, I mean, I remember the evening so well because it was such fun and <laughs> your students clearly just adored you as oh, much as we did. It was, it, it, it was a riot. It was great to have you. So, yeah, I love, absolutely adore working at BIM. But the story of how I got here, you can probably tell I'm from California, dude. Um, <laughs> and I. <laughs> we only have guests, American guests from Do California. You, yeah, I, I, we had the great John Mendelssohn in about uh, six weeks ago. Like that, yeah. So, we're going to yeah. just stick make, to this don't, policy. Don't make the cut if they're like from Utah or. Uh, uh, yeah, no. Michelle Kish is coming in a couple of weeks and she's not from California. Uh oh. Special exception. Where's she she's from? She's in New Yorker. She's in New Yorker. Well, dun, hey. dun, dun, West Coast all the way here. Uh, so, but, um, we have so, a beef. That's we right, have that's a beef. right, that's right. <laughs> 
I'm, I'm going to compose a, a rap about it on the subway. <laughs> so just my backstory is I grew up in the best place in the universe, which is Santa Cruz in Northern California. Santa Cruz. Which you're very familiar with. I wanted to go to the Olympics for swimming. And when I was 16, I came in fourth in the Olympic trials. And oh, they my take, God. They take the top three people. Wow. So then after that, my life was ruined to rock and roll. So I just started. I started putting on ska shows in my um, at the Veterans Hall in, mm-hmm. when I was 16. In Santa Cruz. In Santa Cruz. Wow. So, like, I was doing, like, shows of No Doubt and Sublime, like that Los Angeles, Orange County sound. Yes. They'd come up, do gigs. And then when I was 18 years old, like, we didn't have, like, one of the reasons I love BIM is because it has, it creates a framework for the students. Like, they love music. But, like, when the, when we were coming up, you guys, like, we didn't know. Like, you want to write about music. Where do you go? You go to the, directly the magazine. But no one was there to really mentor you and help you through. I mean, I remember going to the Career Center at UC Berkeley and being like, I want to work. I love music. And they just looked at me like I said, I just set up a crystal meth kitchen in my dorm room. You know what I mean? Which has happened yeah. you have. Yeah, exactly. Girl has to pay the rent mark. You know what I'm saying here, child? Uh, so, yeah. So I so I started when I was 18. I got a job working at Sony Music as the college rep. And like by the time I was 21, I, my, my job was to do marketing and promotional activities for bands when they came to Northern California. Okay. Which at 18, 19, I mean, is there a better job for a kid? Probably you know, not. yeah. I mean, I was like on the one of the first, and they like throw you on the road, do these you know crazy tours. And it was funny because I didn't have a car, and you had to have a car to have the job. And my grandma, she, I remember it was like on Christmas when I got the job, and I'm like, how am I gonna get a car? And she's like, look on the Christmas tree, and she'd written me a check for a thousand dollars. Yeah, I wish. <laughs> no, no, I wish. Yeah, Small yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You put it in water, and it explains like a thing. So I had a thousand dollars to get a car, and the reason I say this is because I ended up getting. 1963 Volvo sedan and the car was a bitch it looked really cool so bands always wanted to drive it but it would be like <laughs> fuck you Jen Nirvana's in the car so I'm gonna break down Jen you know here's two middle fingers you have like there's just, I'll never forget this this band Onyx which was this gangster rap band Onyx I remember Onyx, yeah. back, they were from Northern California they, yeah, yeah, they, yeah they did move back Beep beep, the onyx is here. <laughs> beep beep is an F word. So the car like so I was like the car would break down. It's like the car broke down. It did break down with Eddie Vedder in the car. It did break down with Kurt Cobain in the car. It did break down with Onyx in the car. Because we were in fact with Onyx, it was twenty miles outside of San Francisco. There's this area in the turn of the twentieth century, they moved all the bodies and cemeteries out of San Francisco oh, yeah. because the land was so valuable for housing. So they've moved them all to this area called Colma, which is entirely graves. Okay, Colma. 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 Colon. No, no. Colma. They've moved the whole day. They're not even <laughs> sure of it. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> no, so, so the car breaks down at 4 o'clock in the morning with Onyx. This is before mobile phones. So there's just like cemeteries on either side. So that was how I got my start. And then by the time I was 25, I was head of marketing at Interscope Records. Wow. So that's, that's the trajectory. And then I quit when I was 32. To, to help Gwen Stefani you burned start. out already. I was over 32. it. Yeah. I was, seriously. Yeah, yeah, sure. It was not a good look. <laughs> it, wa- it wasn't. And what happens, I'm sure this happens to you guys, is like people will have experiences with you. Like they got to meet their favorite band or like 
they got to meet their favorite band or, you know, they got to meet their favorite band. Or you did something, right? And to them, it was this pivotal moment. And I have no memory of them, the show, yeah. the moment, like no idea. And I just look at them and I'm like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I'm sorry. And I feel like an absolute cow because their faces just fall. Like, Ooh. So I went from Interscope to work for Gwen. And then I went from Gwen to work at Facebook. Gwen Stefani. Gwen Stefani. Yeah. And then I left Facebook. One of my friends was one of my friends I grew up with was murdered when he was walking home. I think I've told you this before. I do know this story. He was walking home in San Francisco, and I just had like a meltdown. Like I'm like, what am I doing with my life? Like all mm. I do is work, drink, hang out with bands, which sounds great when you're like 21, but mm. when you're like 35, it's like not. There must mm. be more to life. Yeah, than not not as cute of a look. You mm. know what I mean? And tech had really moved into San Francisco. I was I was still like I triangulated between New York and LA and San Francisco, but San Francisco was my main base. And the tech community was really starting to kind of rip away all the cultural elements that attracted me to living in San Francisco, yeah. which that's a whole nother thing, which is you and I were saying before, like London's exact yeah, same yeah, situation. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And it's so, it's so hard. Like I cannot accept now what's happened to the place I love so mm, much. Sure. The things that make it interesting are gone. Mm-hmm. But I did what everyone does when they have a midlife crisis. I sold everything I own and moved here to get a PhD. <laughs> So, so that, that's everyone a, does. Yeah, that's that, right. Then. That's my trajectory to getting to the. And you did, and you I, are Doctor yeah. Jennifer. I am, but your income must have collapsed. In oh the my God, Mark! <laughs> yeah. In fact, could you lend us some? Yeah, I was going to say I was going to kick you up for the tube fare over here, darling. I mean, I went from like making you know a good six figure salary to. And, and having, you know, apartment in San Francisco, having, I had an expense account, I realized, from the time I was 18 to the time I was 36 years old, and always interns and assistants. So, suddenly I'm here, I don't know anybody, I have no expense account, no money, like, I mean, the one positive thing, which sadly I have not maintained, I lost about three stone the first, like, four months I lived here, because I just was like, first I was walking, like, Americans, we sit on our ass constantly. Mm-hmm. Well, especially in California. Yeah, because we drive everywhere, you know? But yeah, it was miserable. I've not gone back, sadly, to the income. I miss. I, I peaked at about twenty-seven on the income. This has been a free fall into the into decline and a life of super. Noodles. So you came here and you thought, "My God, what have I done?" But out of that move, and did I tell you that before? Because I did think that when I first got here. Have I'm I told just you assuming. That? You yeah, thought that. you must well, have thought was, that at some point. It was funny because we were talking about Joy Division before, and I was talking to one of my friends is in the Brian Jonestown massacre, mm-hmm. and he and I both were like. Massive, like into English music, and we were saying how we loved, like, as I, I loved being in California, and it was so romantic to me. Like, I'd see these videos, Mark, of like the Industrial Revolution in Manchester and the smoke and the crumbled <laughs> buildings. So romantic, I, I, I loved it. I'm like, I gotta get there. <laughs> and it's like, it's easy to think that's like amazing. And he and I were laughing. And we're like, we're such idiots because it's like, ooh, that's so cool. It's easy to say <laughs> when it's like 75 degrees outside and you're eating your yeah. or- organic virgin avocado. You know, it's a little bit different. <laughs> when you're actually thrust into it. So, yeah, so I did think that. The first, I think, semester I was getting my, my PhD, I'm just like, I've made a horrendous, horrible mistake. I hate, it's depressing, it's dark, it's cold. I was in a shared house that had um, rats in it. Like, we Welcome know, to the yeah, it was, English It was experience. horrible. Yeah. Yeah. I know it is true, though, isn't it? Because where, where, over were, there, where, where, were you, where were you living? I lived in New Cross. Oh, yeah, so, well, that's that, that, that but... Then still, but it's a pretty funky part of town. Yeah. But out of all this, let's get let's get to the meat of this. Yeah, yeah. Has, has yeah. come has come uh, Bim and 
two books. Yeah. Two books. Five books altogether. Five books altogether. But, but two, the ones two, we know Yes, we know two best. academic books. Ignore the academic. No one cares about the well, academic I believe, books. Well, no, because, well, we love Rockademia, don't we? We are I'll, all I'll about I'll send some over to you. But this is the one, but, this one and the new so one. So you mentioned Joy Division, mm-hmm. and you wrote a wonderful book about obsessive fan worship, it, essentially, really, yeah. which is called Joy Devotion, it which is. I loved. The whole idea of Joy Thank Devotion you. was brilliant. And most recently, this was last year, this came out, 2017? Why vinyl? I can believe it because in any minute now it's going to be 2020. I I can tell you, you get to my age, darling. (laughs) (laughs) Why vinyl matters came out in 2017. uh, Subtitle: A manifesto from musicians and fans. And you talked to a whole raft of luminaries, of stars, of of musicians about why vinyl is so important. And we have three of those kind of testimonies. On Rock's Back Pages, the homepage this week, you're the, you're the featured writer oh in the God. almost famous section. I mean, really, should we just delete almost because <laughs> you, are, you don't get any more famous. Moments away. Yeah. So there's <laughs> conversations about vinyl Q&As with Henry Rollins. Love. Three dudes. Three know, American dudes. No, but we like that. Do American we? Okay, dudes. Yeah, that's right. Henry it. Rollins. Yeah. Lars Ulrich. Love. And Fat Mike of Love. The love. Love them. The love of the vinyl. A lot. So so just, why don't we just talk a little bit about about vinyl. What mm. what prompted the vinyl book? Which is a beautiful thing, by the way. Thank you so much. I, I love, I think it looks really nice. And it just, it is a great book, if I do say so myself. Because, <laughs> <laughs> if I do. Um, I think you should. I, I said yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but I am really, I am quite proud of it. Because it is the manifestation, no pun intended, because I say manifesto, is the manifestation of something that's really important to me. Yeah. And it came about because, as you know, Barney, I'm obsessed with smooth music, like the hollow notes, the Steely Dan. We have a great piece by you on Rock's Back Pages about Yacht Rock. Yacht Rock. Ah, Love it. Yeah. Oh no, Mark's like, no, 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 no. He's on board. <laughs> okay, good. He's on board. Two, the yacht. two, yeah, yeah. here we go. Yeah, yeah. okay, good. Particularly if yeah. Michael McDonald is lurking oh, around. Oh, in there oh, oh, dude, that's like, he's on my list, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Jarvis <laughs> is out, McDonald is slid right in. And our fr- we have a very good mutual friend, don't I know. we? Who's now oh. your agent. Yeah, thanks Matthew to you. Matthew Hamilton. Love you, boo. So we also <laughs> we have a piece about AOR on Rock's yeah. Pages by Matthew. Uh, he was actually billed as Matthew. Speedwagon. No, he wasn't. Yes. Oh my god, that's yeah, so that, cute. That, that's the credit. Um, Yamo, be there. Yamo. I just had to drop that in. Yeah. Just had to drop it yeah. in. So, vinyl, why vinyl mouse came? Because I kept uh, the agent I had before the wonderful Matthew. I was like, there ha- we have to do a book about yacht rock, like mm. a serious book. Because mm. I think that people. I mean, even now, like a couple years later, it's more accepted than it was, you know, even like four or five years ago. Like, and she was just like, nobody's going to buy it. There's no story there, blah, 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 which we all know is not true. And she's like, you're so, and I kept bringing to her album covers of things and being like, this is so amazing. (laughs) Um, And finally, she's like, why don't you just write a book about vinyl? And I'm just like, Okay, because I just wanted, I really wanted to write a commercial book and be like, you, Barney. And so... Well, rich, rich and famous. That's right. <laughs> Extraordinarily good looking. With his own yacht. That's right. With that's his right. own yacht. <laughs> so that's how it came out. There was no real, like, I wasn't like, I'm going to write a manifesto or I'm going to talk to these people. I literally, at this point, I didn't have any more ties to the music business. I'd been here for yeah. long enough that nobody knew who I was. And so I just, I started, I made a list of people, I, like my dream list of people to talk to. Yeah. And then I started just like fault like trying to get a hold of them online. Mm. Like I didn't have any 
like pretty much all my connections in the music business at that point had gone on to other pastures. So I was starting completely from scratch. Well, you did incredibly well in that case. Thank you, you got so much. Some incredibly famous people in here. Well, Big I have. Names. I have to really like. I've said this in other interviews, but I have to always say this. Like, it's really thanks to Henry Rollins that I got things rolling because. I found his email address and I emailed him and I thought, you know, you find these info at, you know, whoever the person is, info at Bernie Hoskins, and you're like, I'm just firing this into a black hole void that maybe an intern will look at and then delete, you know what I mean? <laughs> so I emailed, I didn't have a deal yet, I emailed Henry and I said, hi, my name is Jennifer Baker Dyke, can I interview you? And he said, listen, he's like, well, no, I won't do an interview with you now, but you can use my name to get a deal. And when you get a deal, oh. then we can, I'll That's give you. Is that so? He didn't know he's me. He's a sweet guy. He's a really sweet guy. Colleen Murphy. Yeah, she's, she's, Colleen. she's a pal of mine. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I'm the vinyl skeptic in the Rockstar Pages mm. office. I, I, I think the vinyl revival is based on kind of fairly, in sonic terms, fairly fraudulent basis. Mm. But having said that, that Colleen. DJ Cosmo, who's David Mancuso's representative on Earth, and runs, frankly, the best parties around these oh, days. Oh, yeah, classic uh, album Sunday. Yeah, yeah. The, no, 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 the oh. Lucky Cloud Party. Oh, the Lucky where, Cloud Party. Which is like ultra high end Clipshawn speakers and so on and so forth, valve amplifiers, all that sort of stuff. She's an amazing DJ. And, you know, yeah, she, she's a great believer in vinyl. I, you know what? I listen to so much more music. Now I've got Spotify yeah. high, on the high-quality setting and so on and so forth. I've got three turntables at home, none of which work. So uh, and I, I, I barely look at my vinyl collection anymore. You tried uh, to give it to me. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, no I don't think happen. we can <laughs> do a deal here do you, on air, you know, as yeah. it were. You know, I have to come clean with you, though, Mark. Like, I, It's funny because people think that I'm like this massive vinyl collector and uh-huh. like... You know, that I like, I'm on Discogs getting in wars of people. That's not really, that's not the truth. Not who I am. No, it isn't no. who I You know, it is not, you know, it isn't who I am. That is true. For me, why vinyl matters is because that was the format that I came into music through my sure. parents. You know what I mean? Sure. And it's funny because my record collection is like basically me trying to create, for the most part, the record collection I grew up with. Mm. So I realized the other day, I have three, I have three copies of Billy Joel Glass Houses. <laughs> okay. No, no, that's, 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 that should be banned. Really? Do you? I hate that record. <laughs> I can't have such a low tolerance for him. Really? I don't think it's about individual albums. From really, it's just yes. the whole genre. It's just what about well, him? Yeah, actually, what about, yeah, like, the genre of, like, what about Hall and Oates? Oh yeah, I, mean, I, I have a fondness for certain periods of Hall and Oates, yeah. particularly the early stuff. I think she's gone. Is just one of she's those gone. Oh. Sarah Smart. Oh. We like yeah. the early stuff, so the, early Philly, Philly stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but that's so that when I my whole record collection was actually I had it sent to me earlier this year. And there was about 200, like, singles, like, like 12 inches of Cure, Smiths, and Joy Division crap that I collected. And everything else, I mean, I probably have less than 1,000 records. Everything else is, like, 45s of the Pina Colada song by Rupert Holmes. <laughs> and, uh, and, like, <laughs> and, like, it's funny because, like, around, like, at Christmas, almost, like, every year I've had, like, I get, I, the Christmas Eve, I almost always drink a bottle of, of mulled wine by myself. And then I bust out the 45s. Oh. And I'm, my husband. Like I'm like, do you have to know this song? It's always like, it's always like, uh, do you guys remember like Streets of Fire? Mm. Yes. And like like every year, I think I've played. I can dream about you. You probably know that song, which I have on 45. My husband's like, I still don't know this song. You've played it every year for five 
it's years. a wonderful thing to do, yeah, isn't yeah, it? From so time fun. to time, it's fun. Bust out the forty-five. Yeah, I but, quite agree. But I am with you. Like I, you know, like I love my. I still have an iPod. Mm-hmm. Like I just, I can't go over one hundred percent to streaming. Like I just, I like having my music with me and yeah. at all times and owning it and owning it. Just yeah, I don't I like how the streaming freaks me out. So, so Vaughn, well, we're going to take a picture later, and I'm going to be I holding a piece of. I'm going to be holding a copy of Radio City by Big Star. I was hoping it was going to. I was hoping it was going to be a Billy Joel. Maybe Turnstiles is to piss this one off. <laughs> I, I still have time to go <laughs> home and get my. I think we have the Stranger. Oh, at I home. love the Stranger. Oh, you should have told me. I could have oh. put it in. Shall we, Doc? Do I'm going to call you Doc. You, can't, you go for Doctor. it. Can we? Should we, we talk a little bit about Nika and what you're working on now? So yeah. you are. I think it's such. When you first told me that you said it, like, do you think there's room this. for a biography? of Nico, I thought, why has no one done that? There's that amazing book by James Young, Songs Love They Never him. Play on the Radio. One of the great music books. Oh. But no one's written, I don't think, no. a biography of Nico or Christine Pafkin. Or have Christ- you, Christ- how do you pronounce it? Krista Pafkin. Krista Pafkin. Yeah. This extraordinary woman. Such a dark but fascinating life. In, tell tell, tell yeah, us so why you went down the, ro- the Pafkin road. So it's, you know, Strong like, it's a, let's, let's start off with me just being honest. It was a purely marketing decision in the beginning of the... Well, you were the head of marketing. Of that's right. Oh, can I, you can't see me, but I'm like, mm-hmm, girl, what's it? But there are no girls in the room, so I don't know why I said that. Anyway, so... We're quite good. That's right. That's right. The skincare regime, yes. Um... <laughs> You guys can't see Barney's skin, but I came in. I'm like, OMG, child. Has there been, like, some work, some nips and tucks? He's like, no, it's the new Lancome. So we, we had a very metrosexual yeah, conversation yeah, yeah. about Lizzo products. They carried on when you were out of the room. We, yeah. we, we, I, picked, I picked up the bass on yeah. that. And we'll resume that conversation yeah, exactly. in a second. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, um, back from Lizzo so, yeah. back to Nico. So there's this whole, you know, like, there is this... It's weird because with the whole, like, I hate Me Too, like, I fucking hate Me Too. Which I know, this could be like a whole other podcast. Because I don't like the fact that we're still having to say, like, I'm the one woman in the room. You Mm. know what I mean? You are the one woman. I know I am. But I never, I think I have a very masculine personality in general. You have a personality. <laughs> but I just I I think I've I've never my parents didn't bring me up and I think growing up in hippie Santa Cruz I never thought that I never thought about being female if that makes sense mm. and so this whole push with like Me Too and more women visibility I'm like okay to be fair there aren't really that many women writing about women mm. and there aren't the women that are writing about women it's in this kind of Me Too framework if that makes any sense sure. it's not just like I just want to be, I want to be a writer uh, that's talking about important women in music mm. as a woman looking at this, at what's already been written and yeah. looking at their moment in history if that makes sense but not like oh they were a victim or oh they were this kind of just like well really what was happening then and we have to keep it in the context of when they were alive so I literally with that in mind I literally sat and brainstormed like every woman I could think of and it came down to and then I went and looked on the VH1, like their most, like, because VH1, of course, is the source of everything. Uh, but like, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, yeah, exactly. Dare. I started looking at different lists of like the people composed of like the most important influential women, and it came down to Laura Branigan and Nico as like the two. <laughs> and of course, <laughs> yeah. And of course, me being me, I go to the agent I had that I'm like, I gotta do this fucking Laura Branigan book. <laughs> yeah, she's just she like, said who? yeah, she said yeah. who, and I'm like, Gloria, Gloria. Gloria. Yeah, like and then I think she we, got yeah. it. 
no, no she's she like no she's it. still i'm like and then i bust into self-control do you guys know so do 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 that, i think i yeah. only know gloria oh, if i'm really honest. well there you go it's enough and she's just like well, you have to just go with nico okay so that's I, i'm not gonna lie and say i was this massive velvet underground fan or anything like that like i've i've met and i've interviewed john keel before any of this and i'm like oh he's a nice dude well preserved you know but <laughs> i didn't really i wasn't like i wasn't got like good this, hair yeah he's just still it's usually pink or purple is it was white when I, yeah it was white one i have this great picture of, of seymour stein danny fields and john all together oh, that i took but his great. body is in really good shape like you think he'd be like and i'm like i remember that's why i said i'm like child the, the, the personal trainer nice work well he helped that he stopped drinking it, yeah he's, so he's in good shape he's in good shape but, but that's how nico came about was that and it's been absolutely a pleasure and a joy and an honor to get to interview so many people that knew her yeah and it's really i feel really lucky i mean you really endorsed me in the beginning matthew my fab our fab agent mm. It's just the woman, the way she's been remembered is not the woman that she was at mm. all. And that's what this book is going to be about. It's like, who really was she? She wasn't mm. perfect. Mm-hmm. She was deeply flawed. But she also honestly was an absolute, like, she was a feminist without saying she was a feminist. She was a trailblazer Definitely. without being like, I'm a trailblazer. You know? <laughs> I am a trailblazer. Yeah, tra- <laughs> no, I'd be like, oh, I am a trailblazer. Uh, I'm, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry that I didn't know we were going to be talking about Nico before we started. Because that's my fault. Too. It is your fault. I, I was, first of all, I staggered. I was going through small copies of Record Mirror in 1965, and I, I turned a page, and there's Nico with Mick Jagger at a party in London. I didn't know that oh my she, God. she had had that pre-Velvets mm. kind of n- not really happening Andrew Lou Golden sort mm. of on immediate those. records. Mm. And secondly, and one of the interviews with her from, I guess, sort of early 70s, she predicts her death. Yeah. The where and more or less the how she's going to die. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was very weird. You know, mm-hmm. I was going to was Ibiza, wasn't mm-hmm. she? Mm-hmm. I'm going to go back to Ibiza and die. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, yep. I mean, it's like whoa. You yeah. know, anyway, she's amazing. I mean, she's not to everybody's taste. Even people who that like bloody harmonium. Yeah. That bloody harmonium. <laughs> Do you know what's interesting, though? Yeah, it's because I did my, as we were saying before, I did my PhD on Joy Division. and Very all, similar. Yeah, it was, <laughs> oh, it was hilarious because James Young, and I ha- I'll definitely make sure he listens to this. He's, he said to me, he's like, Jen, because I've had some freaks already come at me. And he's like, he's trying to be like, you know, like the very kind friend. He's like, there's going to be weirdos. There's going to be obsessives. People are going to come at you. And I'm like, child, I did my PhD on Joy Division. <laughs> Drop mic. Like, what else do I have to say? Like, the, the shit people came up with about Ian Curtis. Like, one example, when I was doing the Joy Division uh, project, one of the things I did is I went to Ian Curtis's grave every single month on the same day for a year to document all the crap that people left at his grave. So, of course, I... I got to know the people that worked at the graveyard. They're like, yeah. is that, that crazy American again? And one of the guys, actually, he was the one that cremated Ian Curtis and buried his ashes. And he came right. to my wedding. Yeah. He came to your wedding? Yes, because like when I was getting married... With the ashes? Yeah, no, I yeah. wish. I tucked, wish. Tucked under I his wish. arm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> da, 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 da. Um, but so the reason I bring this up is because I've been at, I've done talks about Joy Division and people in the audience have been like, Ian Curtis isn't actually buried there. That's lies. Like, you're uh, writing lies. And I'm just like... It's just like sort of Sandy Hook or something. It was it was freaks. A complete 
denial. Yeah, of, it was so weird. No. But people are. The one thing that James got right, though, is like the first time I went to Ian Curtis's grave, I took a sachet, a Ziploc bag, actually. actually a sachet sounds quite more classy, doesn't it? <laughs> I took a sachet. I think of you as a sachet. A sachet. Kind of <laughs> um, I um, took like a, a, a little plastic bag of dirt from like on top of Ian's grave home. Okay, and then I had this like poison ring where you flip it open, and I put glue in it, and I put some of the dirt in it, and I would show it around to people. And you think people would be like, "That's fucking weird and dark." People were like, "That's amazing! That's <laughs> so cool!" And like when I uh, went to Mexico, I did this. I did like a project, right? I tried to interview every Joy Division tribute band around the world, and mm-hmm. including me going to Mexico. Mm-hmm. And they were just like. They wanted to take pictures of me. They were like wanting to just, like touch me, get my autograph because I had been to Ian Curtis's grave, mm. and they were just like, "That's the dirt." <laughs> so like, I was ready for the Nico weirdos. Like that prepped me for the Nico weirdos, and, and there are. And you so, weren't disappointed, no. Oh, they're already coming out of the woodwork. Like, and it's funny because unfortunately, I have like because I've done a lot of interviews now. Like, I've become friendly, like with James Young, who wrote that. The, Great. She, he was in um, Nico's Beyond the Faction. Yes. So, like, sometimes when freaks will happen, he'll just get, like, a call from me at, like, 10 o'clock at night. Me being like, oh, my God, another one. He's, he's taking a not picking up the phone, strangely, when he sees my number come up. But, <laughs> but yeah, like, yeah. So it, there and are you must have interviewed our dear friend Danny Fields, I guess. Oh. Or, yeah. Oh. Do we not love Danny? Oh. oh I can't even <laughs> so talk for, about So it. for any listener who doesn't Dan, Danny essentially was the guy who was responsible for signing Nico mm-hmm. as a solo artist yep. to Electra, persuading Jack Holtzman that that she could make some interesting records, which she then did. You know, I mean, whether you love the Marble Index, Desert Shore, etc., or not, you you cannot deny that they are extraordinary, fascinating. That's- I was going to say, I was coming back to the harmonium piece, and that is that I'm not the massive fan of Nico's music, but I think me not being an obsessive fan going into it, yeah, it's like, it's not... It's not about me being me dissecting her songs. It's more the person and the myth. And mm. I have to say, back to Danny. I mean, he connected me with Iggy to get. I have an amazing interview with Iggy Pop that I got. At Iggy Pop. I mean, this is probably a quote. They had an affair, didn't they? Yeah. As did ja- the aforementioned Jackson yeah, Brown. Yeah, as did Jackson Brown. Yes, the young um, Jackson. That's right. But what um, what what Iggy said to me? He said, "I've been waiting to tell somebody everything I remember about Nico, and you're oh, that person." Wow. Well, he's um, such a great interview. So he, sweet. You so get him sweet. started on almost any subject. And he did, he's he was, always interesting. He started the interview. He's like, I'm going to do the interview in Nico voice. And I'm like, <laughs> honey, I'm like, I'm six feet tall and blonde. So you can just, you know, yeah. just, just uh, pretend. But the, yeah. But uh, one thing, but going back to Danny for a quick second, Danny actually has an amazing archive of pictures, newspaper articles and conversations he had with Nico, personal really? letters. And he's been so incredibly generous. He's mm. like opened up his archive oh, to me. A, just a, a wonderful person. Man, is he not? Yeah. So that's been, I mean, there's going to be stuff in this book that never before seen, never before talked about. A lot of things, actually, just one last thing, like things like if you go to, for example, her wiki page, there's a whole part, there's a whole like bullet point, racist Nico, you know, and I know you and I've talked about it and like you start really getting into it and I'm like, okay, she was born in 1938 in Germany. She Mm -hmm. watched trains with Holocaust victims going by. I think she joked a lot about race, but she wasn't. You're taking the person from that context and plopping them into a 2019 mindset, mm. and so things like that I think are important for me to talk about. Like she was hilarious, she was funny, and like she was joking, and mm. she's a sense of humor, and it just 
these things that people think she's this dour, miserable heroin addict who mm. fucked a lot of guys. There mm. was so much more to her than that. That's like almost the boring part about her. Well, we can't wait to read your biography, really. Thank have you, you got so a, much. Have you got a title in mind for it yet? You probably not. You don't want to jinx it. I was say, Barney Hoskins is God. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. <laughs> the biography of Nico. I like this one. <laughs> <laughs> Always like it. Um, Listen, you know, uh, thanks so much for coming Thank and talking. You so much. Stick around, as I, I will. Said. Stick around I will. because we we are going to talk a little bit more about what's new on Rock's Back Pages, and and in you know, Alex Chilton, sort of not a million miles away from from Nico in some in some ways, you know, well, uh, complicated. Which, dark. which direction you're talking about? Well, you know, <laughs> addiction, just the sort of the whole enigma of the guy yeah, yeah. Um, for anyone who doesn't know Alex Chilton his main claim to fame was was, was the principal guy the lead guy in Big Star the ultimate cult rock yeah. band really they mm. were you know they were they were the rock critics favourites they were like a band that had been sort of designed and conceived by critics this this really anomalous group from Memphis who, who didn't sound anything like you know, a southern rock band. It really sounds southern at all, but they were they were brilliant. Uh, really, I one mean, of my favourite bands. It has to be so. You know, yes, big star. But my first exposure to Alex Chilton was the Box Tops. Mm. Was the mm. letter, which was just such a fantastic hit record. It's a really great interview. It's, it's Martin Aston. Did it, Martin did it? Aston yeah. uh, talking to Alex uh, just after the release I think of Feudalist Tarts the wonderfully titled <laughs> Feudalist Tarts and he talks about where that title comes in October 1986 here in London yeah, yeah. and we're going to hear a clip well, now well I mean going back to, to the big big star is that the big star are perceived broadly as Alex Chilton's band and he states absolutely out and out in this interview that actually first of all it's Chris Bell's band when he effectively joined and that the actual the musical direction of the band was set by Chris Bell, and when Chris Bell left, he carried on in the same spirit. So, yes, you know, everyone says Alex Chilton's big star. Mm. Every bit as much Chris Bell's uh, thing. So we're going to listen to this clip now. It's him talking pr- about precisely that. Well, I think that Chris Bell kind of set the tone for the group. Um, for our whole group, you know, that this whole style of everything we did was more or less based on, you know, what kind of music he liked. So you're saying that Chris's, Chris's influence was sort of stronger than yours then, earlier on? I'd say it was stronger than mine, really. I mean, it's interesting. As, as the group carried on, we just carried on without him. Mm. We kind of carried on with the same tradition or um, with the same goals in mind that, that we had had before. Which was what? I mean, really, it was Chris's band when I joined, you know, and then Chris left and I was left with Chris's band. So, uh, you know, we continued in the same sort of vein. Yeah, it's a great Alex interview. Chilton talking about Chris It's Bell. a great interview. I mean, you know, the, I've heard people say that you know, he could be a very difficult interviewee, that depending on his mood, he could become recalcitrant, stroppy. But in this, he's actually kind of very relaxed, uh, very charming. honest. Very charming, very honest about his own problems, his alcoholism and so on and so forth. We'll play a clip later which kind of mm. deals with partly with that. He talks a lot about his songwriting. Now, a lot of us regard him as a 
one a great songwriter. He has no regard for his craft at all. And not I mean, not fair to say no regard, no, but 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 it's really interesting to hear him in this interview sort of say that songs like Thirteen mm-hmm. and In the Street which is so beloved and yep. big star fanatics around the world are, are sort of almost good songs when 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 I sort of think of 13 as the most perfect song ever written yeah. about uh-huh. sort of teenage infatuation I, I think what he's kind of saying is that he found songwriting difficult mm. that he wasn't one of those writers who could just sit down and chop no. songs out uh, he's talked a lot about I mean this is in relation to a question about why you're doing so many cover versions on your yeah. current records particularly the one you just mentioned yeah um, which is all cover versions. Isn't no, it? Not, no quite, not quite, but, but okay. mainly, yeah. mainly, yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's uh, versions of like, um, I think, is it Little GTO? And uh, and he, he, because he moved to New Orleans to get sober or to yeah. stop drinking, essentially, uh, he, he got very what, into what, New Orleans music. It would be my first choice, no. though, to move but, it. He's an amazing story. Of course, so when the replacements uh, uh, wrote and recorded their song Alex Chilton, unambiguous uh, uh, title there, um, they discovered him like sweeping the floor no. of yeah, a yeah. bar or yeah. a restaurant yeah. in New Orleans. Yeah. So he, he kind of went through this very strange um, sort of self-denying um, so, sort of purgatory, this strange um, self-effacing thing that he went through. You know, through he lost his he piano just, yeah. in, in Hurricane Katrina. in Katrina. He lost his piano. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, going back to, to Chris Bell... It, uh, Interestingly, someone's a guy called Rich Topeka, if you pronounce it that way, T-U-P-I-C-A, has just published a biography of Chris Bell. I mean, I am as much a Chris Bell fan as I am an Alex Chilton. And I wrote a huge mojo piece about Big Star. I was trying to really get to the heart of, you know, was it was Big Star more about Chris Bell's sensibility than about mm-hmm. Alex Chilton's? All we know for sure is that after Bell left... Radio City was recorded, the magnificent Radio City, and you know ultimately it's a stronger record, and you know it would seem that, that it essentially was Chilton's work, and then there was Big Star Third. I yeah. mean, such a fascinating guy. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I absolutely love Alex yeah. Chilton. And, this, and, and just so, you know, to say this is, you know, I I listen to and post an audio interview a week on Rock's Back Pages. This is one of the really great ones. Mm. It's a it's only about 40, well, 45 minutes long. Mm. But he really talks about interesting stuff in a really interesting way. He talks way. about the box tops. Um, and, you know, he does... He, he, he tries to explain why he doesn't think his own songs are that great and why sort of versions of the Oogum Boogum song are, have more kind of <laughs> cultural worth than September <laughs> Girls. I mean, it doesn't make much sense, but that's just what he was like. Yeah. The one time I ever, I met him in, in, in Memphis when I went to research this piece and he came up to me and was very, very friendly. And the, the whole premise, the understanding was that I was going to be able to interview him. He then disappeared. Jim Dickinson, the producer of Big Star Third, later told me that that night after they performed on the banks of the Mississippi he smashed up his dressing room went crazy I never heard from him and then one day I was living in Woodstock New York writing this piece and I was constantly calling him to try and get this interview he called me up and he said and I'll never forget it it was about 20 minutes of him talking and he said you know if for you to be interested in me and to be researching my life, you couldn't endear yourself to me less. No. If you want wow. me, oh my you know, God. It, 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 words to the effect, if you if you want me to like you, 
you're going the wrong way about it by showing any interest in my life and music at all. I mean, it was so There's some sort of of weird self-hatred going on in there, isn't there? Yeah, I remember Peter Holsap, who I interviewed for that piece, who was in the Mm -hmm. DBs and one of the the real disciples of Big Star. So he he compared Alex to Melville's great character, Bartleby the Scrivener, Mm -hmm. whose, whose catch line was, I would prefer not to. Whatever Bartleby is asked to do by his employer, he just says... Very calmly, I would prefer not to. <laughs> and that was, you know, I think I ended up calling a piece about Alex the man who preferred not to. He just didn't want this adulation. Mm. And very, very sort of perverse but fascinating man. Yeah. We'll hear a bit more from Alex later, yeah, won't ab- we? Yeah, absolutely. And so at this point, we're just going to talk a little bit about Prefab Sprout. Now, Paddy McAloon of Prefab Sprout, sort of the opposite of Alex Chilton, just an absolutely lovely, sweet guy. I think brilliant. I think they were one of the few really interesting groups that came out of Britain in, in the 80s. What? Um, yeah, no, I absolutely loved them. No, I mean... Yeah, Paul, but, do you just realise that statement? Well, was <laughs> interesting groups that yeah. come out of Britain in the yeah. 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are, you, what, what, what are you implying? That there were none or that there were many more interesting I just, I just would never... Sorry to, like, totally, yeah. like, to jump in, but, like, never in a million years would I be like... Yeah, prefab sprout, top yeah. of the list. I, no, I have to say, I, I, I'm with, I'm with Doctor B- Bickerdyke. <laughs> the doctor, <laughs> the doctor, uh, uh, professorship. Uh, uh, prefab sprout left me utterly cold. I found them bland. Well, you know, shaka son good, well, as we as always ma- have to say, pretty uh, much every week. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I really, I really like their first few albums, and the pretext for this is the reissue of a kind of solo Macaloon work called I Troll the Megahertz, which is a really, really interesting piece of kind of quasi-symphonic music that he originally released as uh, just by Paddy. But it's coming out as a Prefab Sprout album in, I think, a, in a couple of weeks. It's an extraordinary piece of music. I think it, it was released in 2003. But, but So we have three pieces here. We have three items here. One is Max Bell talking to Prefab Sprout for the face in 1984, Paddy is one of the most articulate and eloquent musicians that I've certainly ever interviewed, and I, and I would say Max and others will probably say the same thing. There's also Nick Coleman, who is another, you know, I'm in very good company here, Mark. I Some know. of our best critics really do revere no, this guy. No, I, I, um, I've always been aware so that Nick a Coleman, lot of very good people really love him. Nick Coleman interviewing Paddy in, in 1997 when Andromeda Heights came out. And then actually a little bit of audio of, of I mean, if you want to hear how interesting, charming and articulate Paddy is. There's some free audio of a 1988 interview with Paddy. So that's that's Prefab Sprout. We've done the writer of the week because she's sitting beside us. So we're going to we're going to skip right through into what is new in the Rocksback Pages library yeah. for subscribers. So Absol- over to you, Mark. Yeah, I mean, you know, it keeps reasonably short, but once again, Dawn James, as rapidly becoming apparent to a regular listeners to this podcast, is one of my personal favourite writers, interviewing PJ Proby. I and mean, PJ Proby was impossible individual. <laughs> he, he, uh, That's putting he, it mildly. He, he had an enormously high opinion of himself, which is an opinion shared by, as it turned out, very few other people. <laughs> I mean, one of the quotes is, I'm going to be the greatest thing this country ever had. People who knock me will come crawling. Well, 
Sorry, PJ, they didn't. And I believe you, you end up in a council house in Hull or somewhere he like did, that. doing yeah. covers of songs like Love Will Tear Us Apart. <laughs> oh, Jesus. For this bizarre little indie label. But just to backtrack, this is 1965. Yeah. Of course, what made PJ Proby, who was a... a I don't know if he was a Californian, but he, he moved to London yes. uh, from California yeah, yeah. with sort of Kim Fowley uh, no. notionally representing him yeah. as a manager. Yeah, no, yeah, but this yeah. is a really important part of the whole swinging Kim London Fowley. story. Yeah. So on stage, he split his trousers. Yeah. <laughs> no. So he so, says, so not only am I not apologising, but I'm denying the accusa- accusations about tearing my trousers on purpose. I would not be so darn crude as to stand on a stage and riff off my pants. I'm an act. I've an ego. They split more than once, didn't they? So long sh- before, lo- and long before Jim Morrison. You know, eat, eat your pants out, Jim Jimbo. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> P- PJ probably was, was, which was not his real name, by the way. He had several names. Fascinating man, yeah, probably. Yeah. Moving 72, Jeffrey Cannon's profile of David Bowie for The Guardian, but this is like the director's cut version. And he says he advertises himself as ambisextrous. By itself, long hair doesn't make a man look womanish, but he's worn his hair Lauren Bacall style. He's married with a child, wears skirts, and once said, Tell your readers they can make up their minds about me when I'm found in bed with Rackle Welch's husband. Oh, um, God, I love him. David, I, 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 love, first love of all, I love this ambisextrous. My mother's term for bisexuality was always ambidextrous. So when I saw this, <laughs> I thought, I thought, I thought oh, it's a misprint. I'm going to correct it. And I thought, no, I got to correct it back. Do you guys believe he's gone, by the way? I still can't accept it. <laughs> yeah. I don't think we have time to go down I know. So I just had, like, him and Prince. I'm just still like... We may be sitting here at tea Pete time. Pete Burns, I'm still like, you know. <laughs> okay, sorry, Mark. I'll show no, you. So I, 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 I'm going to skip along. David Lee Roth. Van Halen's David Lee Roth. Being by Richard Kremlin. I'm... Van Halen! Uh, let's do that before I come uh, in. I, 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 I kind of love... I mean, I really like the first two Van Halen albums. You know, I mean, mm. they're just bonkers but I love reading interviews with David Lee Roth he's so clever he's really bright he's got massive sense of humour towards himself doesn't take himself too seriously absolutely and um, he just comes up with you know he's talking about himself if if they don't notice you right away you're going to have to wave your arms around right I've had that since I was two years old I've been waving my arms ever since I can remember uh, which is, you know, it's great. He's saying, look, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm just desperate for attention. He says, you need some charisma. You don't have to jump up and down. Keith Richards hasn't left the ground in ten years, so to speak, and he <laughs> has charisma. Uh, <laughs> this is great about his, his, his confrere in a band, Edward Eddie Van Halen. Edward has a sense of adventure. <laughs> yeah. I know, isn't that great? Edward has a sense of adventure. He will dive head first. We'll see if there's water in the pool later. Which I, I, I think, mm. you know, is terrific. Yeah. And he says... I know it's not your basic heavy metal because there's too many girls in the audience. It's about 50-50 with Van Halen. But it's a fabulous interview. He's so amusing. You know, love him to bits. Right. One uh, of the great Jewish rock gods, David Lee Roth. (laughs) That's how I think of him, actually. Exactly. There aren't aren't many with, like, long blonde hair and just total (laughs) sort of, yeah, Californian hedonistic abandon. So, live review, Roy Wilkinson and Sounds reviewing Madonna at Wembley Arena in 87. Are you going to read out the full title? I will, yes. That one. No, hang on, I'm talking about this piece. Oh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) From our vantage point, high in the realms of nouveau royalty, 
five rows of pastel finery up from Bob and Paula, directly between George M and Donny O. Miss Ciccone appears a distant blur of peroxide <laughs> bask and depilated flesh. As she, looks like at the superstar that, t- as she looks at the superstar tourist info on her monitor, checks the location and claims, High London, England. You can only be dazzled by the size of the spectacle. It's, it's a scathing review. Do you realise it is the eighth live review of Madonna at Wembley on Rock's Back Pages? Really? We could, we no, could, no, we no, could I split think, this I, off. And, I no, think, I counted yesterday. What, on the same year? Because she no, not the same year. No, right. But eight reviews of Madonna playing okay. live at Wembley. I mean, you know, I, I think we could create a sub-site yeah. of <laughs> um, We got Kylie Minogue being interviewed by Clinton Walker for an Australian magazine called The Edge in January 90. January 90, she was still with Scott Stockett and Waterman, had been in her first movie and was just starting to sort of possibly start emerging as the Kylie that we now know and love. And she says, you know, it's been proven in the past, you don't have to write and produce and play everything on your albums to be respected and be successful. As an actor, you read words that are written for you, take directions, do it the best you can. So surely you can do that as a singer, but it's kind of hard to convince people of that, which is actually, I think, a very solid point, you know. Now, <laughs> this EMF, who are a sort of lumpen, non-master yes, from, the forest of Dean. from the Forest of Dean. The headline of the piece by Stephen <laughs> Wells is, I've got you under my foreskin. It's the, oh, God, it's nobody the, wants to know. Explicit content. It's from the enemy in, in October 1992. And these guys prove themselves to be just appalling oaths. I'm sorry, you know. And, and anyways, one of them saying, I got recognised by this real old stomper in the sit-down Chinese in Cinderford. And what exactly is a stomper? A real old slapper, explains Mark. Oh. Like a 32-year-old ad's dairy. <laughs> one, one of your mum's old mates always used to come round your house when you were young and you always fancied her and she starts coming on to you later. <laughs> oh, yeah, what are you doing? You're in that band, aren't you? Oh, I remember when you used to run around in your pants. <laughs> My brother had that, didn't he, remembers Mark. My mum's mate is a stomper. She ended up staying around our house and jumping in a sack with him. He was only 19. She was, oh, an animal. But isn't that every young man's dream? Not round our way, it isn't. They're well armed. They flatten some grass. I mean, this is brilliant. You couldn't make this stuff. No, no, I mean, what's great is that the marvellous and much missed Stephen Wells. Yeah. Is it, he was great at allowing bands to hang themselves. Yes. He had asked just the right questions for them to say the most ridiculous, preposterous things. And then he'd write it up with alacrity in the enemy. Fantastic uh, writer. Uh, A very lasting, very brief one. Paul Oakenfold, Oakenfold was one of the sort of the, the leaders of the superstar DJ generation mm. in the 90s. And he's been interviewed by Caroline Sullivan. And he says, I suppose you could say that being a DJ is the equivalent of being a pop star. All the kids today have turntables and they're sitting oh, practicing yeah. in their bedroom six hours. You know, oh, I said, oh, no, for God's where? sake. Your yeah, I mean, you, you know. sound of your So that's marvellously dated, yeah. you know, yeah, when yeah, yeah. The, the, the DJ was at the cutting edge of he the He was culture. sort of the ultimate superstar DJ, wasn't he? I remember thinking it was incredibly tiresome at the time. Yeah. You know, um, some carried it's it off even with, more tiresome s- now. Some, I mean, I mean, Fat Boy Slim uh, carried it off with a certain amount of humour, yeah. which I thought was kind of gave him sort of get out. But and of course now, it's particularly in America, EDM is all about the superstar DJ. Yeah. It's like basically it's stadium rock for dance music fans. Except they aren't even really dance music fans, are they? Um, no. Having said, I mean, I've been spent the last twenty years of my life absolutely drenched in dance culture, um, and you know. Well, I, wow. a lot of part- that's a big share a, for the a, podcast a, a, lot, <laughs> <laughs> a, 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 a lot of partying and uh, and I've you know I love 
a great DJ, talking about Colleen Murphy earlier. She's, I mean, she's a fantastic DJ. If you ever get a chance to see her play out, just, just big shout it. out for Colleen. DJ Cosmo. You know, so, so I've been in rooms where a really great DJ has been playing fabulous music. Fabulous, but it wasn't well. Paul Oaken. But it wasn't Paul Oaken. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's just this this preposterous arrogance of the man. So anyway, yeah. that's my. Thank you so much, Mark. Well, I think we're sort of drawing. Sadly, regretfully, to uh, close. Yes, <laughs> yes. Our time is up. It's <laughs> in, been, in more, it's been, more ways than one. <laughs> yeah, 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 I think we really should name this podcast "Old Farts at Play" after that wonderful song by Captain Beefheart. <laughs> but I'm speaking, of course, exclusively about your hosts here, not about say, our illustrious <laughs> guest, the goddess of rock herself, <laughs> Dr. Jennifer Otterbickerdyke. Thank you so yeah, much. Thank you. So so much that's for brilliant. traipsing in oh. all this way. I don't know where you've come from. It's I know oh, it's not pretty, Santa Cruz. She's just around the corner. Yeah, she, <laughs> does, she does. She does. But let's. She's flown in for our purposes. She's flown in from Santa Cruz. You know, thank you. It's been thank just so, so lovely much. having you here. Yeah. You, you're just adorable and brilliant. And oh. and as they always sort of say. <laughs> Come and see us again. I was going to say, what, can, I, can I come next time? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've, yeah. I've just got to say to our listeners that this has been one of the more nauseating lovings between these two. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 I, I've, I've yet to witness. But no, it's been fantastic having you here. It's been huge fun. Thank it you so, it, it so, really so has. And so, so, look, go out and buy Why Vinyl Matters. Uh, Jennifer's great book and uh, also Joy Devotion and when the book comes out her Nico biography I won't can I come I, back and talk about that when I get the next absolutely yeah, I'd love to talk about Nico you, you will so thanks again thank you love you absolute pleasure S- see you soon and we are going to fade out as it were yeah we, with, we, 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 with Alex Chilton talking about the lost years the mid 70s as he disappears away from Arden Studios and into a bottle essentially just very really interesting stuff Thanks for joining us. See you next week. See ya. I'd say in, in 74, most of the people around Ardent in Memphis had kind of decided that I was I was going off the deep end and was, was getting a little too crazy to be dealt with. And uh, the music I was starting to make was, was pretty crazy too. Mm-hmm. And um, so we parted ways, I guess, sometime in 1974, and I um, didn't much hang around in their recording studio anymore. 75, I just just hung out doing nothing, I guess, and maybe a little recording in 75. Ah, oh, yeah, that's when Tiven came to Memphis and said, hey, look, man, we've got to get your career resurrected, baby. I'm going to produce something on you. And, uh, you know, he cut that EP that, that came out on Orc and has come out on 10 different labels, and I've never seen any money at all. Um, that's, you know, I guess that's about the only thing. I did a couple of other things in 75, but they haven't been heard yet. 76, just hanging around, messing around, drinking worse than ever, and still taking drugs too. And I guess sometime in 76, I started reading this guy, Wilhelm Reich. Are you acquainted with his work? That was Alex Chilton in conversation with Martin Aston, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Jennifer Otter Bickerdyke, 
For further details of her work, please visit jenniferotterbickerdyke.com. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. You can find thousands of articles as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. 